Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, who doesn't love a good rags-to-riches story, right? Uh, from the time we were little, we were told stories like Cinderella about the, the poor stepsister who was mistreated and then ended up being the belle of the ball and, and the, the, the princess of the kingdom. Or you have, um, I mean, how many of us as middle school parents had to sit through a middle school production of Annie? <laughs> you know, uh, I think uh, every middle school in the country has done Annie by now. And it's, you know, the story of this poor little orphan girl who is adopted by the fabulously wealthy Daddy Warbucks. Or um, in the Bible, you have the story of Joseph, uh, who is sold a literal slave into Egypt by his own brothers, but then rises through the ranks with God's blessing on him and ends up being the second in command of all of Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh, fabulously wealthy and powerful and able to save his own family from starvation in spite of what they had done to him. Uh, do you, any of you know the story of Sean Connery, the, the British actor? Uh, you realize his is a rags to riches story? Kind of floundered as a young man, going from job to job, not really finding his place in life. Uh, started off as a milkman and then he joined the Royal Navy thinking that that would be better, ended up getting discharged because he had a duodenal ulcer. And then he bounced around from job to job like truck driver, then laborer, then, then um, a, an artist's model. Uh, he also got a job as a coffin polisher. Um, he finally um, got a job as a stagehand in a little theater and, you know, did all the stuff stagehands do and f finagled his way into getting a bit part or two on stage, became a struggling actor who made so little that he had to take babysitting jobs to supplement his income. How'd you like to have Sean Connery as your babysitter? <laughs> well, he finally, because he was on stage a little bit, finally got his break as an actor and, and landed the role of none other than James Bond, you know, <laughs> which was his ticket to fame and fortune and uh, a very successful acting career that unfolded from that point forward, so much so that he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in July of 2000, Sir Sean Connery. What a rags-to-riches story that is, huh? But you know what? As great as that story is, I want you to realize that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an even greater rags-to-riches story than that. Because you, in fact, have gone from being a slave to becoming heir to a vast fortune. The tragedy of it is that some of us who become heirs insist on living as if we're still slaves. I want you to listen carefully what God's word is saying to us today because I don't want that to be you. 
There are few things sadder than to fail to realize who you are in Christ, to fail to realize what you've been given in Christ and only ever end up living like a slave when in fact you are an heir. That's a big part of what Paul's trying to get across to believers in the churches of Galatia to whom he is writing this letter, this bossy little letter in which he's been trying to get the attention of Christians who have fallen for the lies of false teachers who want them to continue to live like slaves. So these Judaizers, as we've called them, they are Christians who essentially are, are attempting to make Christianity just another form of Judaism these false teachers have come behind and have convinced these new believers, Gentile believers in Galatia, that, well, you know, it's good that Paul told you to trust in Christ. That's a good start. But if you really want to be perfected in your faith, now you've got to start obeying the law of Moses. Trust in Jesus and then act like a Jew. That's what you really need if you really want to be perfect in your faith. But Paul has been combating this error from every angle he can think of and in chapter 3, he has made the point that the law was not given for that purpose. The law was not given so that you could earn your salvation. The law was not given so that you could be perfected in your faith. But rather, God made a promise to Abraham that through his family line, one would come who would bring salvation to all the families of the earth, namely the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. And God's program for our salvation has always been about that promise and that promised one. The law was not given as a means to obtain our salvation or to perfect our salvation, but rather the law was given as a guardian, a way of keeping salvation's heirs in line until the promise could be received. And now that the Savior has come, well, we can't be saved uh, by living according to the law. We never could. But we can only be saved by faith in him so that there's no longer a need to live under the guardianship of the law. But that's what these false teachers want you to do. They want you to live as if you're still slaves when in fact you've become heirs of salvation and all of its promises. Paul wants us to live in the reality that Jesus turns slaves into heirs. Jesus turns slaves into heirs. And here in the last few verses of Galatians 3, in the first seven verses of Galatians 4, Paul shows us a three-step process whereby that happens, how Jesus turns slaves into heirs. In fact, he tells us this process, this three-part process, in the last few verses of chapter 3. And then apparently he wants to be sure that we get it, so he tells us all over again in the first seven verses of chapter 4. So he gives it to us once, and then he gives it to us again so that we won't miss it. So here it is, the three-part process. Part one... We were once slaves. We were once slaves. Remember two weeks ago we talked about this, how God gave a promise to Abraham that he would have an offspring, a seed, and through that singular offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed that promise, and God counted him righteous on the basis of his faith. And the Galatians had been made righteous the same way. They have believed in the promised one that God had sent. They believed in Jesus. No one can be saved by keeping the law, not even, even if you, you, you attempt to keep it perfectly. No one can. The law was never really given for that purpose. The law was given to keep God's children in check until the promise for, of salvation was fulfilled in Christ. And so the law, Paul said, was a pedagogue, a, a slave 
as we talked about two weeks ago, a slave assigned by a Roman father to watch over his son to keep him in line until he could become an heir. And so this pedagogue would, would guide the child from home to school and then from school back home again. Whenever the child was out in public, he was overshadowed by this slave who was to make sure that the child didn't act up in public in ways that would embarrass dad. And so Paul says that's like what the law was to us while we were waiting for the Messiah to come. It was put in place to kind of keep God's children in line until they could receive the promise. He says of this in uh, verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our pedagogue, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, not by keeping the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Don't need the guardian anymore now that we have Jesus. Paul's whole point was that a child did not remain in that slave-like state forever. There came a time, usually when the child turned 16 or 18, when the pedagogue was relieved of his duties by the father. The father said, your services are no longer needed because the child was then officially adopted as a son in a formal ceremony where the son was declared a man, now fully recognized by his, his father as the son. And he was given the toga of manhood, the toga virilis to wear as a sign of his manhood. We'll talk about that toga in a few minutes. But the point is, we were once slaves like that. We were waiting for the promise, and in the meantime, we had this pedagogue, the law, assigned to keep us in line. But there comes a time when you no longer need the pedagogue because you're no longer a slave, but now a son. So we were once slaves. We became sons. We went from being children under the guardianship of the law uh, with the status of virtual slaves to being brought into full sonship with God. And how did that happen? Well, he tells us in verse 26, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Not through keeping the law, but through faith. You are all sons of God through faith. Now, it's popular for people to say, well, we're all just children of God, aren't we? Yeah, you know, that's only true in the most general sense of all, in that God is the creator of us all. And Paul talks about something like that in Acts 17. But technically speaking, the scripture doesn't say we're all just children of God because we're all part of Adam's race. We've all sinned against God in Adam. We become rebels against God. We've made ourselves his enemies. And the scripture teaches very clearly, if you want to be a child of God, you've got to come to faith in Christ. As the apostle John wrote in John 1:12, for as many of you, I'm sorry, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, believed in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. So uh, Paul puts it this way in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the symbol of our identification with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Being baptized into Christ is like being clothed with Christ, it says here, literally, it says, you, you've been clothed with Christ. You have put on Christ. Just as in Roman society, a young man, when he was coming of age, 
The pedagogue was dismissed. There was a formal ceremony in which that young man was, that, that boy was recognized now as a man, and he was given the toga virilis, the toga of manhood to wear, as a sign that he had now been fully admitted into sonship with all of the, the rights that attain to it. So also we in Christ have laid aside the child's toga worn by those under the pedagogue and have received our adoption as sons. And to be clear, when Paul says in verse 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, or when he says in verse 26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith, he means all. That the, the gospel is inclusive in that way. So much so that he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What makes you a son is your faith in Christ. And by the way, I'm, I'm saying son because that's the figure of speech that Paul's using here. I'm not trying to be chauvinistic and excluding women. But the, son, the figure here is that of a son, somebody who was under the pedagogue, who then has the pedagogue uh, dismissed, now becomes a son and receives the toga. Paul says that happens for all of us in Christ. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Nothing else matters as a qualification. Not your race, not your ethnic identity, not your status in society, and not your sex. And this is revolutionary in the first century because virtually all religions made distinctions of this type. Jewish men, for instance, prayed a little prayer when they got up every morning. And this likely included Paul before he came to Christ. He probably would have prayed this prayer too. And the prayer went like this. I thank you, God, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Literally, they would pray that prayer. And it's likely that the Judaizers of Paul's day would have believed much the same way, would have prayed that same prayer, that the ideal of one favored by God is an observant Jewish male who is free, not a slave. All others are out of luck, or at least they come farther down the list. But Paul is teaching, no, the only thing that matters is Christ and faith in him, for we are all one in Christ. Not that a Jew stops being a Jew, or a Gentile stops being a Gentile, or a slave stops being a slave, or a free man stops being a free man. Not that a male stops being a male or a female stops being a female, but that there's only one criteria for being admitted into sonship, and that is being in Christ, having faith in him as your Savior and Lord. Jews will still observe their ethnic customs, and Gentiles will still observe their ethnic customs. Slaves would still have to obey their masters, and freemen would still be free. Men and women would still have their unique roles to play in the life of the family and also in the life of the church, as Paul will show us in later epistles. But all were welcomed into the church on the same basis, and that basis was faith in Christ, baptism into Christ, being clothed with Christ. Historian Rodney Clark argues that this is one of the reasons why the Christian faith spread so rapidly throughout the Roman Empire, because of its revolutionary attitude, especially toward women. He writes, recent objective evidence leaves no doubt that Christian women did enjoy far greater equality with men than did their pagan and Jewish counterparts. A study of Christian burials in the catacombs under Rome, based on 3,733 cases found that Christian women 
we're nearly as likely as Christian men to be commemorated with lengthy inscriptions. This near equality in the commemoration of males and females is something that's peculiar to Christians and sets them apart from the non-Christian populations of the city. This was true not only of adults, but also of children, as Christians lamented the loss of a daughter as much as that of a son, which was especially unusual compared with other religious groups in Rome. Men, women, slaves, freemen, Gentiles, and Jews all came the same way, by the faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And all experienced something like what a son in a Roman family experienced when the pedagogue was dismissed and a new robe was put on him and he was formally acknowledged as a son. And with that adoption as a son, he became an heir. So we were once slaves, we became sons, and then step three, we are now heirs. He says in verse 29, if you are Christ's, if you belong to him by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you remember how earlier in chapter 3, Paul made the point that God's program for salvation was always about the promise God had made to Abraham. It was never about the law of Moses. The law of Moses was put in place to serve the promise, to keep in line the unruly children of God who would eventually receive the inheritance. That's why they needed the guardian, the pedagogue of the law. So in a real sense, Abraham's offspring includes not just those born into Abraham's family biologically, but those who, like Abraham, believe the promise God made to Abraham that through Messiah, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you become part of Abraham's believing family and thereby an heir to the salvation that was promised to Abraham. The Judaizers wanted the Galatians to think that, well, they could become children of Abraham if they would just keep the law of Moses. But Abraham never kept the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given 400 or more years after the time of Abraham. Abraham was saved by believing what God promised. And Paul has been showing us you're saved the same way, by faith in Jesus. We were once slaves under the law. We became sons by faith in Christ. And that makes us heirs according to promise. When a son in a Roman family received his full rights as sonship, in Roman times, when he was given that robe of citizenship to wear and was accorded all the rights that went along with it, it was understood that at that time he became a rightful heir of his father's estate. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Think about what that means. I mean, I admit that I can't begin to get my brain around what it really means to be a son of God, a child of God, to be an heir of God in Christ. But consider some other scriptures that help us grasp more of what that must mean. For instance, in Romans 8, Paul talks about how we've been adopted as sons, and the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about how we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Paul says to Titus in Titus 3 that we've been justified by God's grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
And to the Ephesians, Paul says, I pray that God will open the eyes of your heart that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Jesus turned slaves into heirs. We once were slaves. We became sons. We are now heirs. Now, Paul doesn't want heirs to keep living like slaves. So he's so concerned that we get this that he's going to tell us the same thing all over again in the first seven verses of chapter 4. So here it is again, in case you didn't get it the first time. Step one, we were once slaves. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under <clears throat> guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Again, Paul is referencing the custom in Roman society of putting children under management of pedagogues and other caretakers. As such, the child might be eventually the heir of the whole estate, but for the time being, he has no more rights than the slave who is in charge of him. And he'll remain like a slave with no legal standing of his own until whatever time the father sets. And Paul says, don't you see, that's like us. We were slaves under the law until the father determined otherwise. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul says that basically our situation was just like that of a child under a pedagogue until the father determined it was time for Jesus to come. The Jews were under the authority of the law of Moses that acted like a pedagogue, keeping the children of Israel in line. But Gentiles, though they didn't have the law of Moses, had God's law written on their hearts. You know, the basic moral principles by which societies everywhere live. You know, do not lie, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't disobey your parents. The elementary teachings of the world. Even Gentiles are expected to live by the ABCs of a basic moral code. Not that obedience to the law could save them, it couldn't. Because no one keeps the law perfectly, but at least it was something to keep unruly children in age until the time of Messiah. And when he came, we were afforded the opportunity to be done with our minders, to be done with the pedagogues that kept us living like slaves. When through faith in Christ, we became sons. We were once slaves, we became sons. In verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love this phrase, the fullness of time, because it talks about how God knew when the time was just right to send Jesus. Historians speculate that maybe the fullness of time has to do with the fact that it was the time of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, you know, the Romans had conquered just about everything, so there weren't any wars. There was this, this peace that prevailed throughout the empire, and uh, there was law and order so you could travel uh, safely. Not only that, but the Romans had established this incredible network of highways throughout the empire. You could travel from one end of the empire to the other easily on the Roman highways. And not only that, but there was a common language that everybody spoke, Koine Greek, the, the language of the, the Greek Old Test, or New Testament that we have in the writings of the apostles and, and, and the Gospels. 
And, and it was this language, it was kind of like English today, where, you know, if you want to do business around the world, you better know English. Well, Koine Greek was kind of that language of business. So wherever they went throughout the Roman Empire, traveling easily because of the Roman peace, traveling easily because of the Roman highway system, speaking one language, it was easy to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And, and there was a general expectation in, in that time that the Messiah was soon to come, coming out of, out of Jerusalem, coming out of Judea, rather. And, and so all of these factors kind of came together in just the right moment where God decided, okay, it's time to send forth his son, born of a woman. His son, his eternal son, whose life was of infinite worth, became a man and was born of the Virgin Mary. Born himself under the law. Born to a Jewish family, he was under the law himself. And he, he lived perfectly according to the law. He's the only one who ever could. And it was a good thing. Because by virtue of living a perfect life, he was able to give his life of infinite worth on the cross as the only adequate payment for, for the sins of all mankind. Giving his life willingly as our ransom from sin. So that those who are under the law, to, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He came specifically to pay the price that sets us free. That's the, the redemption there. And he had a specific reason for doing it. Because ultimately, once he set us free from the slave market of sin, once he set us free from our slavery and removed the offense between us and God, the way was cleared for us to be adopted as his sons. He says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has set the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Not only has he done all this work for us to redeem us and to adopt us, but then he gives us his spirit to, to stamp the family identity in our hearts so that we know that we belong to God. We became sons. We are now heirs. He says in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul wants us to be sure we understand who we are in Christ. Not slaves, but children. And not just children, but heirs of God. Do you know how sad it is when an heir continues to live like a pauper? There's a case a couple of years ago in Oregon where a woman, homeless woman, died after many years of being on the streets, struggling with drug addiction and mental illness. Her name was Kathy Boone. And, and it was January 2020 when she was found dead on the streets. But the real tragedy of it is, according to her father, that she died without collecting any of the inheritance that was due her after her mother's death, an estate worth an estimated $900,000. She was an heiress, and she died a pauper. Court records say that after her mother died, representatives of the estate went looking for Kathy. They tried to contact her via phone and email. They spoke to other members of the family. They sent her messages on Facebook. They ran ads in the newspaper. They even hired a private investigator to find her. All of them came up empty. And the people who knew her best had no idea that she had that much money. Paul says, don't let that happen to you. Make sure that you understand who you are in Christ. 
Paul doesn't want God's kids to go on living like slaves and paupers and homeless people. He wants us to know that we've been adopted as sons through faith in Christ. We have a loving Abba who has made us heirs of a spiritual inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, being kept in heaven for us. So don't forget how Christ has turned you from a slave into an heir. We were once slaves. We became sons. We are now heirs. I wonder how many of his believers only half believe what Paul is saying here. I wonder how many of us still live in fear, living as if you know, we have to do more, we have to prove ourselves, we have to keep the rules in order to be accepted. David Prince writes about a family he knows who adopted an older child from an especially horrific orphanage in another country. And when they brought this girl home, One of the things they told her was that she would be expected to keep her room clean every day. And when she heard about this responsibility, she fixated on it and and took it as a way she could earn her family's love. So every morning, they would find her in her room, immaculately kept, sitting on her bed, and she would say to them, my room is clean, Can I stay? Do you still love me? It broke her new parents' hearts for them to realize she thought that she had to do this in order to earn her place in the family. And it took some time for them to help her understand that she was their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken, that she needn't act as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but if you're in Christ, you need to stop living like a visitor trying to earn your place in the family. You are a beloved child who will never be forsaken. God's word is saying to us today, stop acting like you're still a slave. Don't let anyone convince you that you need to live under the law to prove yourself worthy of being in the family. No, Christ has come. The law of Moses has served its purpose. The pedagogue has been dismissed. You've been adopted as sons, clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. And not only that, but you've been given his spirit who not only connects you to your Abba, Father, but who enables you to live in Christ a righteous life that transcends the law. So start living like the heir you are in Christ. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's who you are, believer. So let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, we're in awe of all that you've done for us in Christ. Sinners though we were, Jesus gave his life to atone for our sin. Slaves though we were, 
You adopted us into your family and made us your children, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Father, I pray that you would remove from us that spirit of fear, that sense of slavery that some of us live with, that we still have to somehow earn our way into the family. Lord, I pray that you would assure us with the truth of your word that we are chosen, not forsaken, that we are who you say we are in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we may go from this place today with that sense of freedom and confidence of who you've made us to be in Jesus, living lives by the power of your spirit that bring you honor and glory. Our Father, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.